Welcome to Access Ideas. This is Yana, and today I'm speaking with Luke Chow. Luke founded the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in 2006, and he holds an Honours Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Toronto and Consulting Hypnotist and Certified Instructor Certifications with the National Guild of Hypnotists. His approach is client and solutions focused, brief and humanistic. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Let's start by defining hypnosis, what it is, and how do you use it? Sure. Well, every practitioner probably has a somewhat different definition, so I'll give you mine. And mine is derived from a practitioner and trainer called Dave Elman. And he was teaching way back in the 50s and the 60s, but I still find this definition to be pertinent and useful. So hypnosis comes in two parts. First, it's bypassing the critical faculties. And that's less scary than it sounds, as we'll kind of talk about in this interview. And secondly, it's establishing acceptable selective thinking, which Mm. means that the client is wholeheartedly fixated on one idea to the exclusion of other ideas. So it's a rather technical definition, but there's a lot packed into those two criteria for separating hypnotic states Mm-hmm. from other states of mind. You've also heard it described as a um, highly focused state. You've also heard it as a highly suggestible state. That's right. And perhaps also a relaxed state. Um, but the Elman definition is quite clear as to how we separate hypnosis from meditation, for example, where the criterion of wholeheartedly fixating on one idea after bypassing the critical faculties. That's something that's quite unique to hypnosis. And the way that we apply it is that um, for the issues that a hypnotherapist might see, so issues with um, habits, mindset, confidence, there's usually a worldview or a mindset that people without the problem will have. My job as a hypnotherapist is to have the client suspend their analytical, rational, critical mind and then wholeheartedly accept, or at least as wholeheartedly as possible, accept the worldview or mindset I'm suggesting, which will be the mindset of someone who doesn't have their problem. So I'm kind of teaching smokers how to think and live like an ex-smoker. I'm teaching fearful flyers how to think and see the world the way a fearless flyer sees the world. I'm teaching my weight loss clients to take care of themselves the way someone who takes care of themselves would. So in a nutshell, that's what we do. So a lot of people hear the term hypnosis and they'll think of entertainment like stage hypnosis. Can you succinctly clarify that for anyone listening to really differentiate yourself that you are not performing any sort of party tricks or or entertainment. (laughs) Yes, well, so as a tool, hypnosis um, is kind of neutral or agnostic uh, about whether it's used for entertainment or whether it's used for for therapy or for relaxation or for accepting of, of new mindsets. So the way I would differentiate stage hypnosis from hypnotherapy is that in stage hypnosis, you, you, you want the volunteers to accept a rather bizarre idea 
temporarily only for the duration of the show. Mm, like barking like a dog. Yes. <laughs> and as soon as they go back home, they see everyone treats them as human, so that idea can't stand. Like, it's not going to persist. Um, a hypnotherapist kind of wants their clients to accept very normal, grounded, truthful ideas for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Even though we're both using the tool of hypnosis, the objectives are different and the skill set is different. Stage hypnosis is a lot of showmanship. Mm -hmm. And hypnotherapy, obviously, there is no audience where showmanship doesn't really count for too much at all. Yeah. But to kind of give people a worldview that will persist and help them perhaps for life does require some deeper, longer-term thinking. And that's one of the reasons why I actually wanted to have a conversation with you on the podcast is you will actually break down how hypnosis works and dispel any spiritual or mystical aspects of it in your YouTube videos and more recently on your TikTok channel. And I'm going to include that in the show notes because I think it's a great resource to neatly sum up some of the aspects of hypnosis. But I'm also interested in diving a little deeper into this idea of suggestion. So that that word that you used a few moments ago. And you mentioned that hypnotists will straight up tell you that they are using the power of suggestion, whereas other suggestive states, and I think of things like faith healing or placebo effect type situations, there is more of a showmanship or mysterious aspect and element to that. And what I'm curious to know specifically here is, do you feel that removing that mysticism or that mystery from the ideas that people may hold about hypnosis has been really integral in strengthening your impact on clients and making a difference? I do believe so, yes. And as you know, my practice is physically situated in downtown Toronto. So I get clients from the financial district. I get clients from the universities. I get clients who have professional jobs in downtown Toronto. And um, you, you can't really BS them, right? <laughs> like If I tried to BS my clients, I would lose all of my clients. Yeah. They're more skeptical than the average person, maybe, you could say. Yeah, more thoughtful, more, more skeptical, more critical, you know, a better grasp, perhaps, of epistemology or how we come to know what we do know. Mm -hmm. So I have to work within the way that an educated professional thinks. I can't have my educated professional clients just ignore all their education and take what I say on faith. Mm -hmm. So yes, it kind of uh, does serve, at least the population who I serve, um, it, it does serve them if I'm very clear and rational and grounded in my explanations of how hypnosis works. But it's also sort of for my personal understanding, because I don't just practice hypnosis, I also teach hypnosis, partly as you've seen on YouTube and TikTok, but, but also um, in a workshop setting inside my office. And, you know, even if in public there's sometimes showmanship among some practitioners, in private, if you are going to teach the next generation of practitioners, you, you can't just tell people to take things on faith. This isn't like religious dogma. It's supposed to be um, 
I'm going to call it an emerging profession. It's not a well-established profession. It's an emerging profession. And, you know, all professions must care about things like ethics. And all professions must care about things like how they derive their knowledge or how we separate good ideas from the bad. So in medicine, we have the scientific method. We have double-blind controlled uh, studies. Um, in, in law, we have the adversarial system for trying to figure out, you know, what is most truthful or what is best argued. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that if hypnotherapy or hypnotism is to be accepted as a legitimate profession in the future, then we owe it to the public not to, and I can't think of a better term, but not to BS them. <laughs> sure, that's fair enough. And that's, I think, what sets apart the content that you've shared on social media. Another evolving belief that seems to be out there is the idea that in order to benefit from hypnosis, people have to be highly suggestible. And this is an inherent trait that you're either born with or you don't have it. And I understand your beliefs about this or your point of view on this has evolved quite a bit. And so... What I'd like to get at here is, can everyone benefit from or utilize a form of hypnosis? Well, I'll give a couple of answers, but I actually want to back up a little bit because I I realized I didn't completely answer your prior question. Sure. Because you started to ask about the power of suggestion in contexts other than hypnotherapy. So I'll offer some more answers. Great. So my point that hypnotherapists will tell you that it's the power of suggestion Whereas other practices or disciplines that use the power suggestion might not um, applies to faith healing and placebos. So in faith healing, it's the power of God that that is attributed for how people are able to walk or how they're relieved from pain. With placebos, it is the deceit that the treatment being received by the patient is not a sham. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll kind of leave faith alone, mainly because I'm not religious. And I know it can be quite a touchy subject. But when it comes to placebos, there's definitely a deceptive aspect where you pretend that you're giving someone medicine. In reality, you're giving them something completely inert, and that, that's how we know it, it is the power of suggestion. The, the suggestion mm-hmm. being, this will help you. This will ease your pain. That's what's causing the effect. But with a placebo, like a saline in- injection or a sugar pill, there's little specificity in the message being delivered. So giving someone a sugar pill really only delivers the message, this will help you with the ailment that you've presented. Right. A hypnotist can... Um, use verbal suggestion to put into words any idea that the mind can conceive of. So hypnosis can be very specific in how we use the power of suggestion in ways that placebos cannot. And there's a figure from the 1980s, I believe, called Kevin Trudeau. And I don't really agree with everything he does, but no relation to Pierre or uh, Justin Trudeau, by the way. <laughs> Just to clarify. <laughs> yep. He described hypnosis as a non-deceptive mega placebo. 
Hmm. And again, I I don't agree with everything he said, but when it comes to hypnosis being seen as a non-deceptive mega placebo, that's not far off the mark. That, that, That kind of encapsulates hypnosis in relation to placebos in that, you know, like, like he says, it's non-deceptive and you can do a whole lot more with it than a saline injection or a sugar pill. Exactly. So fundamentally, it's about belief. And when a client comes to see you or uses hypnotherapy on their own, mm-hmm. their belief that it will have an impact mm-hmm. is part of the recipe, if you will, for success. Yeah. And that's part of the reason I feel like I owe it to my clients to explain what the heck I actually do. <laughs> so so that it, it does answer any skeptical or doubtful questions in their mind. And to, to me, hypnosis works exactly very similarly to the way that education works, to the way that coaching works. There's no mystery that someone who's been coached is going to be better at the activity than the same person before they were coached. It, mm. it's, it's almost inevitable that someone with good proper guidance is going to do better than before they had the guidance. Mm-hmm. If you apply that paradigm to hypnosis, it makes a whole lot more sense than the idea that we are doing something to the client. Yes, but I want to add a question around what differentiates hypnosis from pure education or information? Because as you've mentioned, you know, smokers know that cigarettes stink. They know cigarettes could kill them, but something is obviously keeping them going, keeping them smoking. So what is it about the state of hypnosis that makes it different in terms of receiving information? I'm glad your first question was to define hypnosis, because I am going to refer back to my answer to that first question. Mm -hmm. It is bypassing the analytical mind or the critical faculties and wholeheartedly accepting what the hypnotist is verbally suggesting. So that wholehearted acceptance of the hypnotist's suggestions is what lets people wrap their heads around the mindset or the worldview of an ex-smoker or a non-smoker. And all the warning labels on cigarette packs or, or the scare stories that you hear in middle school, like that it's worse than heroin, you're right, it doesn't seem to make a big impact. And one take that I have on that is that when you're trying to scare people but not also telling them what to do instead or how to think instead to cope with the stressors that they have, then no amount of fear is going to cause them to change. They're going to do what works for them. If you give people a better way to cope with stress, or better yet, a worldview such that less stress is evoked by daily experience, then it doesn't make as much sense to smoke tobacco. Once you have someone realize the full extent of their aliveness, and once you have them treat themselves accordingly, smoking tobacco is incongruent with that worldview. If, if you recognize that you know, a, a baby or a child or a cat or dog or bird is fully alive, you probably can't smoke into their face. You, most mm-hmm. of us will not be able to bring ourselves to harm life. Mm-hmm. Yet we, we often exclude ourselves from life. 
Yeah. So, which is why the message is, you know, to accept the full yeah. extent of your aliveness. But it sounds like that wholehearted state isn't our default state. So we're not walking around typically receptive to these messages. So maybe can you go into a little more detail around how to get into that wholehearted state, whether with a therapist or even on your own? Yes. So in hypnosis, we have something called the induction. And the the induction is the process of getting someone to tune out of the outer world and tune into their inner world and to focus or fixate on one subject or one idea. Um, we also have something called a deepener, which is supposed to take them more, uh, the, the metaphor is deeper into their inner world. And we have to keep in mind that the words I'm picking just approximate this actual subjective experience. Sure. Um, but we'll, we'll say deeper into hypnosis or deeper into their inner world. So there are different types of inductions, but what they have in common is that they are a process of having the client focus inwardly. Mm-hmm. And at the same time then to tune out of the outside world, past and future, other people and other people's needs and other people's demands, it's perhaps captured by the description of half awake and half asleep. Mm-hmm. Where when you're half awake and half asleep, sometimes you have these vivid dreams. They're, they're, they're not quite daydreams. They're not quite dreams. You're half lucid, but you're kind of asleep. So that subjective experience that many of us have had might be the closest approximation to what it feels like to be hypnotized. And in that state, we aren't thinking as analytically, we aren't thinking as rationally, but you know what? Sometimes to our benefit. Mm -hmm. It is true that someone who is highly suggestible is more vulnerable to bad ideas. So there are people who are more highly suggestible than others. Yeah, well, I mean, that's another question that you'd asked. So I'll talk a bit about that. Sure. In at least the scientific or the academic research into hypnosis, there seems to be a consensus that some people are highly suggestible, some people are low or even non-responsive to hypnosis, and then most people are just in the middle part of the bell curve. So my own experience corroborates this idea that suggestibility is on a bell curve. And people who are high in suggestibility you know, they might cry easily at movies. They might, you know, have a hard time saying no to whatever someone's trying to sell them. Mm-hmm. They often pick up on the emotions or ideas of other people around them. And then people who are low in suggestibility seem almost unflappable. They are harder to affect emotionally, whether in the context of hypnotherapy or just in everyday life. So I tend to agree with that consensus that suggestibility is on a spectrum where it's a Gaussian distribution or or a normal distribution. And most people are just average in suggestibility with some outliers. Um, Now, hypnotherapists often say a lot of things that I wonder if 
if it's more for their benefit than for the benefit of the public. And there is this idea that everyone can be hypnotized, but there's a difference between the question of can everyone be hypnotized versus can everyone be hypnotized easily enough that it's worth pursuing hypnosis? Yeah, it's of benefit to them. A exactly. And those are different questions. So because I'm a practitioner rather than an academic, I'm interested in the question of can everyone be hypnotized easily enough that I can recommend they proceed with me? And, and the, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. There's maybe 10 or 15% of the population who I would recommend against proceeding with hypnosis just because I think it's the long way around mm -hmm. for them specifically. But the question of can everyone be hypnotized hypothetically under ideal conditions? <laughs> th that's an academic question which, which um, doesn't necessarily translate practically into, into a practice like mine. Well, going back to what you said a moment ago around people who are suggestible, the example of being more likely to cry at sad movies or being able to say no, do you feel there's a conflation or do you see a conflation between susceptibility and sensitivity? So are people who are maybe more emotionally sensitive also more likely to be clients who would benefit from hypnosis? I definitely find that the clients who come into my office are more sensitive, introspective, self-aware, thoughtful. And because I can't really compare them with people who don't walk into my office, sure. I, 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 I don't know whether I, I can draw any meaningful conclusions. But I do believe that if someone comes in and they just kind of sit there cross-armed saying, make me... <laughs> <laughs> Such a person's not really worth, you know, kind of working with because it's going to be an uphill battle. Whereas someone who is very sensitive, often I can say something once and it resonates. And that's kind of a picture of the ideal client where I don't have to keep making the same point many times. And I don't have to try to find ways to kind of get an idea in their heads. I can just speak straightforwardly. And the first time, or maybe the second time I say it, it sinks in, it resonates, and they got it. That's kind of a picture of someone who's a very good candidate for receiving verbal suggestion. So one of the points that I find quite compelling that you've brought up is this idea that when people come in, they typically are coming to you for a specific problem. We mentioned quitting smoking. You've also mentioned weight loss or exercise, healthier habits. But what I find really fascinating about your practice is you're not using a traditional diagnostic model. You're focused on fulfilling needs that the clients will have. And where it gets a little bit sensitive is sometimes those clients might not be aware that actually your problem, uh, let's say with quitting smoking, relates to what you mentioned before, which is not being able to see yourself as an equal living being worthy of health or a good quality of life and ability to breathe. So talk a little bit about working with individuals so that you can define their needs and help them outside of any sort of scientific diagnostic model that people might be used to. So how would you approach that? Thank you. I, I appreciate the question because this is where I think that some of the work I'm doing 
is not work that I'm really seeing a lot of other people do. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to kind of talk about this paradigm that's emerging, not just from me, but from other hypnotherapists, where using verbal suggestion, we are going to practice differently than someone who subscribes to a problem-based or diagnostic-based model. Mm -hmm. So here's the analogy I'm going to give to you. Let's say that someone gives me a withered houseplant. And the plant's alive, so it's got maybe one or two green leaves, but it's clearly been neglected. I don't have to know who neglected the plant, or for how long, or how it got neglected, or the circumstances under which it got neglected. I can see a withered house plant and know that it needs enough sunshine, but not too much for that species, and enough water, but not too much, and enough nutrition in the soil, but not too much, and that plant almost inevitably is going to thrive again. Mm -hmm. So, human beings have a long list of needs. And that list of needs is more similar for different individuals than it is different. I don't need a special list of needs for one client versus another client of a different age and a, a different background and a different occupation. Um, another analogy that I'm going to use is that we recognize very easily that a Chihuahua and a Great Dane are both dogs, and we treat them both as dogs. And we recognize a dog has a certain list of needs, emotional needs and social needs and need for validation and encouragement on top of food and water. And we treat the dog accordingly. And I kind of see human beings in a very similar light in that if we see the human first and then we, we see the differences second, to me, that's the right order of things. And the other thing is that this is not just theoretical, that this is actually how I practice. One of the constraints that a hypnotherapist has to work under is that there is the popular expectation that we work fast, way faster than a psychotherapist or a psychologist. So by necessity, I have to be looking for the commonalities between human beings so that I don't have to do a lengthy intake and a getting-to-know-you process with every new client. I can kind of treat them as human with unmet needs and be right most of the time. Mm -hmm. So the list of needs being the same or similar for all human beings. But would you ever run into conflict there with, yes. with people who say, well, I'm unique, I'm different. Yes. And a couple of cases come to mind. And in both cases, the client has experienced severe childhood trauma, abuse, and neglect. And that trauma history kind of, in my view, causes them to exclude themselves from humanity. Mm -hmm. Which means when I talk about the needs they have in common with other human beings, they're excluding themselves. They kind of see themselves as other than human or less okay. than human or sometimes more than human, like superhuman, which to me is not the person I see in front of me. And, uh, you know, I, I can't make people come into my office. So in some cases, I, I have to just kind of not talk about the client's humanity, even if the evidence of my own eyes shows me a human being. Sure. But conversely, would you get people who are grandiose and feel that they're exceptional? And so 
they might feel sensitive about being a subject that's being treated like every other subject. In other words, maybe they feel like, oh, I want special treatment because this is uh, for me. It's um, it's a very small minority of, of my clients. Like I said, most of my clients are quite thoughtful and intelligent and, and sensitive. And I see you know, a picture of someone who's very grandiose um, doesn't really match the picture of someone who puts their own mind in someone else's hands for that someone else to tell them straight up what to think. That's a good point. <laughs> yes. So it's a very small percentage of my clients. But one of the purposes or intents of the hypnotic induction is to get the client to put aside their usual mode of thinking and to listen wholeheartedly. So even if at first the client might reject the idea, for example, of their equality with every other human being, now, to, to me, it's going to be very hard to talk me out of this idea that that's a good idea for everyone to adopt their, their fundamental equality with all human beings. Yeah. So even if, if at first they have a hard time accepting that, usually, maybe by the second session, once there's been some trust built up, once they know I'm leading their thinking in a helpful direction, I can reintroduce the idea. And if they consent to it, then in hypnosis, I can expand upon the idea, and usually with more words, I'm able to get them to accept an idea that at first they might have rejected with, without even thinking about it. And I, I'm kind of in the business of belief change, so I'm going to have to do this. I, I'm not really in the business of just accepting at face value the belief that the client walks in with. I'm kind of in the business of trying to figure out an ideal set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. And then communicating that ideal set of beliefs in contradiction to the unhelpful or randomly collected assortment of beliefs that the client walks into my office with. And it's that state of open-heartedness or wholeheartedness or suggestibility that enables your clients to take that in in a way that maybe they've they've heard that message many times before, but they simply weren't able to adapt to it or embrace it. Correct. Yes. Yes. Often the things I say are, are not completely new or earth-shattering or groundbreaking. Um, like, I'll pick the example of you're alive. That's <laughs> sure. not really groundbreaking, but it's still <laughs> helpful to keep in mind sometimes because we treat ourselves differently if we remember our aliveness versus if we forget our aliveness. And you've talked a little bit about how you see your work a little bit more in a creative context versus a scientific context. And I think that makes sense based on what you've talked about with the diagnostic model and problem solving. But can you talk a little bit as well about where your work might intersect with data and research or ideas people have about hypnosis and where they might line up with? research and understanding about how the mind works. Yeah, well, earlier I, I was talking about how I do agree with what seems to be the academic consensus, that suggestibility is on a bell curve. It's not that everyone is suggestible, it's that there are going to be people who are low in suggestibility and other people who are high and most people are in between. So, um, so I do agree with much of the research. Um, and the reason I see myself as more of an artist than a scientist is because I'm working with individual subjective experience 
and not so much with large groups or populations. Now, earlier I talked about how I'm trying to figure out like what's what's the universal human list of needs? What's the universal human list of values that, that might um, help anyone who adopts them? Um, so in that way, I, I am trying to kind of derive more general conclusions from individual experience. But I have a lot of respect for science, and science does have a certain rigor that um, the kind of work that I do doesn't have. And partly it, it is because I, I make the effort to personalize the experience within the constraints of maybe only three hours or a few hours. I still, you know, at least make some effort to personalize the experience, which makes it an uncontrolled experiment if I were doing a scientific experiment. So science is supposed to be rigorous. It's supposed to be quantitative. It's supposed to um, do controlled studies and not just what the person in front of you might need to hear. Mm -hmm. So th that's why, you know, in picking sides, I see myself more as a creative than as a scientist, but that's not to diminish science. Not at all. Precisely. Yeah. It, it's yeah. actually out of respect for the, the rigorous work that a scientist does that I won't put the label on myself. Mm -hmm. And I think it's your ability to cross over analytical thinking to picking up on signs and cues and combine ideas with emotions that probably makes you more effective than yeah. someone who's just using one or the other. Well, I'd like to point out that the history of philosophy and storytelling and meaning-making is far longer than the history of science, let alone the history of psychology or psychiatry. I mean, the, the DSM's currently in version 5. There's going to be a 6. There's going to be a 7. They're going to get rid of some diagnostic categories. They're going to add some more. It's going to keep evolving because it, it's not like Newtonian physics where it's pretty much settled. So I kind of treat the science of mental health treatment as very much in its infancy. And if they reach some clear conclusions, I might borrow from th that what I'm going to count then as knowledge that science has discovered. But a lot of what is being, um, uh, you know, normalized that's coming out of psychiatry and psychology, to me, I'm not sure it crosses the threshold that I can count it as knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, psychology has kind of a repli replicability crisis. And like I said, psychiatry keeps going through revisions. Um, and even something like psychiatric diagnosis is somewhat of an art and not purely a science. The, the criteria are somewhat subjective and not objective, such as the results of a blood test. Mm -hmm. So, you know, long story short, hypnotherapy is an emerging profession that I see running in parallel. <laughs> with other professions that might be more advanced, but that I, I still kind of see as having a lot of difficult problems to solve before I can really borrow too much sure, from what they're sure. doing. Well, and even if your experience is comparable to something like a case study or qualitative studies, the proof is in the pudding when it comes to your tenure in the field. <laughs> You know, you've got you've got a lot of years under your belt working with clients who've had success, 
And that doesn't seem like it could be pure coincidence. So this moving towards a healthy worldview, it sounds very simple on the surface, but you've had a lot of success with it because your clients have told you so. And and I would trust that. Well, so I'll tell you how I'm generating knowledge or original knowledge with the practice that I have. So even though I'm not calling it scientific, I'll tell you how I'm generating knowledge nonetheless. And something I started doing just about three years ago is writing out treatment plans. And the treatment plans basically outline some points I would communicate to the client before I communicate those points to them so they can kind of read out what I've written, share it with their with their spouse, with their therapist, with their doctor if they want to. And then they, they can kind of approve of it and then I implement the plan. So that's given me um, a reference that iterates and improves over time. So I've probably written, you know, maybe close to 100 weight loss treatment plans up to now. And if you look at the first one I wrote, it wasn't very good. <laughs> but if you look at the 50th, then it got better. And if if you look at the newest ones, they're going to get better still because after I implement a treatment plan, or even as I implement a treatment plan, we're soliciting feedback from the client and sometimes the client gives unsolicited feedback. And either way, I gain a bit of knowledge Mm -hmm. that the ideas I'm communicating are going to be helping people with an increasingly larger sample size. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, it's kind of trying to straddle the boundary between creativity and science in that I don't ever want to turn into a crackpot as people can if they just sit alone and think by themselves. Sure. I, I need my work to be in conversation with, with my clients, um, with, um, you know, larger groups of people over time. And the way the ball's rolling, uh, my treatment plans are getting better and better. We're hitting the nail on the head sooner and sooner. We are kind of deriving these generalized conclusions about humanity because I'm writing it it into a plan that the client approves of it. I, I expand upon it and it seems to help over and over again. But the point that the same point has been made to 20 people or 50 people and most of them benefited, to me, that's crossing the threshold of knowledge. That that point might be on the list of human needs or human values or good principles by which to live in the 21st century. Let's use that example of the weight loss plan since it is a common one. What are some of the messages or key points you would include in that treatment plan that you're seeing work and become effective again and again. One point I write into all my plans is that the mind-body link is real. Because this has to be said. And it's the premise upon which all hypnosis or forms of suggestion will be built upon. It's because your body listens to the thoughts in your head and often quite carefully, that changing the thoughts in your head will affect how you feel beneath the neck. If you tell yourself that you need a drink or that you need a smoke or that you need some food, you know you start to feel like you need it and then you go and fulfill what feels like a need. 
If you tell yourself you need a hug, if you tell yourself that you need a friend, if you tell yourself you need a break, if you tell yourself you need some sunshine and clean air or a good song, mm -hmm. then you kind of crave that and you want that instead and that you fulfill that. I would actually argue that things like time in nature and music and stories are on the list of human needs and that without these things, we suffer. With these things, it contributes to our thriving as human beings. Mm -hmm. So the first point I make to everyone is the mind-body link is real. And during a hypnosis session, they have a lived experience of that. Mm -hmm. For weight loss, I also then make the point that they're going to take care of themselves because they're alive. Now, you need no reason other than life to take care of, let's say, a houseplant or a pet cat or a child, right? You know, you don't need to, you know, have it be their birthday. You, you, you don't need to first, you know, have them gain too much weight before you feed them well. Although I will argue that there's people that brag about their ability to kill houseplants and they're perfectly <laughs> lovely people, but I always wonder where that comes from. I, 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 yeah, it's, it's you know, um, self-deprecating humor, I think. That um, makes sense. Yeah, but, you know, like, I've seen some of your houseplants in some of the video calls we've done, and, you know, your plants always seem to thrive. And that's not by, it's not by accident. It's not at all by accident. It, it is with care. It is with recognizing the aliveness in the plant and the, the care that aliveness needs and deserves. Sometimes we treat ourselves worse than our house plants. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to expand upon this analogy because when you're watering a plant, at some point you pull back the watering can before the plant gets too much of a good thing. And you'll look at the species of the plant and give it enough shade versus enough sunshine. And a plant that doesn't thrive in sunshine, you wouldn't put in direct sunlight. So this is just a bare minimum standard by which we might treat other forms of life. When it comes to my weight loss clients, I use this analogy, especially if I notice, say, on a video call that they, they have houseplants in the background or if a cat walks in view or if a dog barks in the next room, then I'll make this point that, you know, treating yourself the way you treat all other life means that there's some ways of neglecting yourself that you'll have to relinquish. Mm -hmm. And th there's a certain level of care that you might give yourself just to be unhypocritical about how you take care of life that's yours to care for. So I like that. Yeah. And sort of a self consistency that, well, if I believe that I should take care of my plant or my cat, then wouldn't I do the same for myself? Yes. And people neglect themselves because of, in my view at least, this kind of objectification or commoditization of human beings that's kind of a product of the school system and the corporate world and the incentives that we have around us where we kind of do encourage ourselves to, you know, we have to fit into a certain grade and then follow that cohort regardless of individual differences. And we have to kind of, you know, be a good cog in the machine lest we get replaced by a better cog in that machine. And this kind of objectification places us outside of the realm of life. 
so I, I mean, I don't know if this is too much of a tangent, but like, no, this is actually really fundamental. I think is because it's a theme you come back to again and again in, in your talks, which is seeing ourselves as part of life as it exists, as it ebbs and flows, versus this static or non-living entity that is calibrated perfectly to our systems that aren't actually living systems. And in most cases, that's where the problem lies, right? We're trying to calibrate ourselves to a standard or a measurement or um, social opinion. And I think part of the broad message, and correct me if I'm going off in the wrong direction here, but part of the broad message that I'm hearing from you is to help people to contextualize themselves back into a living system, a living earth, really, Um, whether it's looking at themselves in comparison to their ability to take care of a house, plant a cat, a dog, but also, like you mentioned, nature, storytelling, seeing themselves as part of a greater living whole versus a cog in a machine, which is not really living, if we're we're being honest. Yeah. So... To extend the houseplant analogy, I water the plant where it needs watering, or I fulfill the need that is not being fulfilled elsewhere. If our schools and parents and employers encouraged us to recognize our aliveness and discouraged us from seeing ourselves as a cog in a machine, I wouldn't have to speak this message so often, so broadly at all. I'd be speaking a different message. It's because we undervalue our own aliveness or we keep up double standards for our life versus other life. This is why I have to say it. It's because these kinds of messages are not really said or not said enough of elsewhere that I have a practice at all. I mean, my ideal world is such that I never have to say any of this ever, and I'm like a painter or something. (laughs) But we're not living in that world. We're living in a world where the living beings, we call human, are trying to fit themselves into these boxes that they're not really shaped for, and no wonder they're unhappy. And for me to help them in ways that the other professions often sometimes seem to miss or aren't doing enough of... I am straight up telling people some of these fundamental truths that then they can see with their own eyes, that they'll keep seeing with their own eyes, that aren't actually much of a stretch, but that just aren't talked about or recognized enough of. And I want to add to this one of the messages that you have on TikTok, which I I love. Self-love is more like sunshine than pie. And this is such a relevant statement in the sense that many people start to believe that compassion and self-love is a zero-sum game. Like, if I'm kind to myself and I don't say mean things to myself or push myself by using not very loving language, I'll somehow miss out or I'll become weak. Or it's this belief that to succeed in life, and that can be financially, with relationships, whatever, there is a finite amount of happiness and we have to be careful about, <laughs> about, you know, missing that or misappropriating our talents. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about that 
compassion and self-love as a foundation of wisdom, because I think that's actually a message that you use in, in many of your sessions, regardless of what problems the client perceives that they're facing. Yes. And so first, let's recognize compassion and love as being on the list of human needs. When these needs are fulfilled, you know, some of these conditions for thriving are met. When these needs are not fulfilled, we can't then thrive. And once we become adults, we kind of gain moral authority over ourselves. This is another message that's not said enough of, but I'm saying it. By the time that your vote at election time counts and can help guide the future of the country, let's consider you to be a moral authority yeah. over yourself. And reminding people that sometimes your parents are wrong and very wrong. Yes. That's another message that really Oh, yes. <laughs> we could talk for days or weeks about all yeah. the messages that the world is not giving enough to people, which is why I'm happy to like show up on these kinds of podcasts and, and, and share these ideas. Because this idea that we have moral authority over ourselves is what allows us to love ourselves despite you know perceived flaws or imperfections this moral authority over ourselves means we can disagree with our parents or teachers or childhood caregivers or the status quo this moral authority over ourselves empowers us to give ourselves self-respect and so one thing i want for my clients is for the idea of self-respect not to feel empty Mm-hmm. I want them to feel self-respect as the highest authority over them respecting them. So if, if you have moral authority over yourself and you conduct yourself in ways that you deem respectable, then you respect yourself and you feel respected regardless of what other people might say or not say. I mean, the, the 20th century had multiple civil rights movements and it changed the world for the better because at some point, someone got fed up. <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> and they had enough self-respect to stand up and say something about it. Mm-hmm. So to come back to the analogy that love is like sunshine, not like pie, I want to say that it's only when you were a young child that you kind of didn't have the resources to respect yourself and feel like an authority over that matter or to love yourself and feel like an authority over that matter. But most of your listeners, I imagine, are adults. So for most of your listeners, their self-respect really does count, and their self-love really does count, and they don't have to withhold it from themselves. And they're also not taking someone else's attention or time or energy by being self-loving and self-respecting or feeling self-compassion and self-worth or performing acts of self-care. I would say that, you know, by the time we reach adulthood, one of the defining qualities that makes us an adult is that we don't necessarily need someone else to come along and say, hey, you're valued, you're a respectable person, you're a good person, you're a decent person. We can see with our own eyes and feel with our own moral judgment when we are being a good or decent or respectable person. And just to kind of keep coming back to the point, if you see love or respect as being like a pie, I would suggest that possibly that worldview 
might only have applied in the family you grew up in, where the parents may have had limited time or attention or energy. But now you're one of the adults. Once you become an adult, you have a permanent seat at the grown-up table. And your own moral authority counts. Your own thoughts, opinions count. And you can give yourself all the love, all the compassion, all the respect that you feel like you need. For most people, they don't even have to worry about too much. They just have to worry about getting enough. Mm-hmm. Like sunshine. Like like sunshine. Well, you know, there's enough sunshine that we don't put others in the shade when <laughs> yes, exactly. we enjoy the sunshine. So if you kind of see your own metaphorically, your heart as like the sun, then you, you can bask in your own warmth and feel your own love and respect without depriving others of the same. This belief about self-love and compassion, as you say it, to me, it sounds very accessible. It hangs together. It makes sense. It's not particularly profound or mystical or out there. But I'm, I suspect that some of the clients that you work with, when you deliver this message, it impacts them profoundly in that hypnosis state. And to the point sometimes where maybe you see tears or emotional responses. Talk a little bit about that if you're comfortable. Well, watering a plant would not be especially profound or new. But if you're watering a plant that's been sorely neglected, the plant's going to soak it all up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So earlier I said in the ideal world, I'd be out of business. Yes. But it's because very few people are are giving this message of self-love and self-worth and self-respect. And, you know, so people are underwatered, even though they don't have to be, because they don't have to depend upon their parents or employer or spouse to water them. Sure, sure. And going back to this idea of self-efficacy and being able to help ourselves, Can you talk a little bit about how people might be able to use these mind-body connections and what you've talked about today without hiring you or another hypnotherapist, how they could start working toward these things on their own? Yes. Well, this podcast is a really good starting point. Great. Because you don't have to hire someone to give you personal attention. If you can tune into a podcast like this one and get something new from it. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of resources for free on the internet or your local public library that kind of fill in some gaps that your parents left during your upbringing. And so the first thing I want to say is that if you don't have the means to hire a professional for personalized attention, you're not out of luck. The other thing I'll say is that Once you start to uphold a universal standard for how you talk to a person, you don't need special words for talking to yourself inside your head. Talking to yourself like a friend is more than good enough. Talking to yourself like a sibling is more than good enough. Talking to yourself like a kid, like one of your own children, is more than good enough. You talked about great tools on the internet, and certainly I want to point people in the direction of your TikTok and YouTube channels. Are there any other resources or ideas that could help people practice these skills, whether it's speaking to themselves with more compassion or treating themselves with more kindness? 
Yeah, well, I kind of want to leave your listeners with the idea that as soon as this episode ends, they can start practicing self-love and self-respect and self-care. So rather than kind of pointing them to another um, resource that they would have spent time consuming, I'll say that the things I've shared during this episode are not watered down. They're not like a second-rate version of what my paying clients are hearing in the privacy of my office when they paid me. So everything I've said is something that you would get if you paid me for it. Mm -hmm. um, but on top of that, we don't have to overcomplicate helpful, self-loving, self-respecting self-talk. If you kind of apply the filter of, would you say this to someone else? Mm. Then it's going to take a lot of what you've been telling yourself and uh, crumple it up and toss it. And it's going to take other things you tell yourself and put a spotlight on it. And so I, I want to say to your listeners that um, you know probably the best use of the next hour is to examine their own thoughts and go through this kind of spring cleaning process of keeping the thoughts that are good enough to speak to a friend or good enough to pass on to a child as part of their future worldview, and then discarding those thoughts or at least labeling them suspect when you wouldn't say them to another. And usually at bedtime, when you're falling asleep, this is another very good time, not just to be tormented with thoughts about mistakes <laughs> you could have, you know, mistakes you made or things you could have done. That's a good time to kind of like sort through those thoughts and put more attention with just a bit of intentionality on those thoughts that make you feel good. If you keep in mind that the mind-body link is real, that your body's an excellent listener and it's, it's listening all the time, then you kind of owe it to yourself to have an inner dialogue that sounds like the kind of dialogue you would uphold in a workplace or a classroom or a household. Mm -hmm. And if there are terms of abuse going on inside your head that you kind of, you know, give yourself, if you feel like you're, you, you know, you could receive ongoing verbal abuse with no consequence, then those are the thoughts to kind of discard. Um, one thing I often say to clients is that your, your inner critic is not your conscience. It's not a truth teller. It's a devil's advocate. It, it comes up with the things no one else even thinks of, and then it shoves it in your face. But you can very safely put the inner critic in a box and neglect it completely because the things it has to offer have no merit. And that kind of cuts out a big source of the ongoing self-criticism and negativity. So it's not exactly the question you asked, but hopefully that gives um, your listeners a few next steps. And it's also empowering, I believe, to feel that you already have the right filters and you already have enough moral authority to do this. And you already have the capacity for thought to keep the good ideas and discard the bad ideas. I like that it's very practical and accessible. This isn't um, an added cost, really, to anyone. We all have to fall asleep at some point. So exactly, why not use it to reflect on um, some of these points? I think that's great advice. I would like to turn 
to focus on you actually next. And that is what's coming next for you. I know that you're moving to a new office. That's very exciting. But you have a very full list of clients. And I know that you'd like to spread some of these really great, practical, applicable ideas outside of the office, as you've mentioned several times in our chat today. Can you talk a little bit about what you'd like to pursue or experiment with even? Yes. So I'm approaching 40. And I've been doing hypnotherapy since I was 23. So this is basically a, a lifelong career. And, you know, I can't see myself doing anything else. And it's kind of exciting to be on the forefront of this emerging profession and to be helping to set some of the norms and the standards and to, you know, to kind of possibly correct some of the flaws with, I'll say it like this. It's also a privilege to do things in a way that the status quo is not currently doing. Mm -hmm. So in the future of my practice, I see a lot of public advocacy for hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Um, and the, the way I kind of explain it, there is nothing mystical or strange about it. There's nothing deceitful about it. It also doesn't really step on the toes of the psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists, mainly because I'm doing something they're not really doing unless mm -hmm. they also do hypnotism. So there's that. And the move that you mentioned is very exciting to me for one reason. The space has a 600 or 650 square foot room that I'm setting up as a classroom. And that's it, amazing. And it's not going to have like, you know, like those elementary school chairs. It's going <laughs> to have, <laughs> it's going to have armchairs. So if you kind of imagine like it's, a yoga class or a meditation class, but with armchairs rather than pillows and yoga mats. Nice. That's the way I'm going to set it up. And it lets me reach more people for every hour of my time. So one of the challenges I've kind of come across in this nominally post-pandemic world is that it's like all the pent-up demand is suddenly being released this summer. And I am working six or seven days a week, and I'm booked two or three weeks out. And one of the ways to kind of manage my client load is to put more people in the room. For some issues, not every issue, for some issues like better sleep, um, weight loss, smoking cessation, I can deliver one message to, say, 15 or 20 people, and each of those people might get something different from it, but each of those people will get something from it. And um, on a broader scale, I'm doing more of these interviews. I do have the TikTok channel and the YouTube channels, both at Morpheus Hypnosis. And the YouTube channel has sample sessions, which lets me reach more people internationally. Um, the TikTok channel is primarily short thoughts about just generally the ideas that I'm sharing in private with my clients or that I implement in my own life that I think the world would benefit from. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not really expecting to kind of like make any kind of return on investment from my YouTube channel or my TikTok channels. It's actually because I get distressed when I see so many people with thinking that can be fairly easily corrected. Mm -hmm. And no one's saying the things that I say. So I, again, in the ideal world, I wouldn't even have a practice. 
But because we live in the world we do, with so many bad ideas floating around that people believe in, unfortunately, I, I feel almost a, a moral obligation to give to the world by spreading ideas as widely and freely or cheaply as possible. Well, that is well aligned with the purpose of this podcast, to spread good ideas that are founded in reality and accessible to more people. So with that, I'd love to thank you for coming on the podcast today, Luke. You've been a wonderful guest and I always enjoy chatting with you. I look forward to seeing what comes next in your office and any insights that you have to share from that new experience of client groups. That would be fascinating to hear. And I appreciate that you invited me and that you were able to spend some of your weekend having this conversation. I, I appreciate you and your listeners, and I'm happy to be on. Great. Thanks again, Luke. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. love access ideas we'd love for you to subscribe rate and review us on podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts tell your friends about the podcast too until next time thanks for listening to access ideas Ooh.